Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Um, welcome to episode 269. i um, going to talk about uh, sash repair, 18th, 19th, 17th century sash repair. How to do it with uh, some modern tools, where to get them. So, so you know, divided wood sash, the typical 18th and 19th century windows, are extremely prone to damage. And, you know, to find originals, it's, it's quite the feat today because of, of all the weathering they took. Their small parts are no match for the ravages of weather and water and ultraviolet rays and wind and, and decay when paint and putty fail. So, like, if you're in the neighborhood and, you know, uh, depending on your house, foul baseballs and vandals, rock-throwing vandals, and carelessness with interior sash locks and the window falling too quickly and cracking something and inflict quick and sometimes major injury to these uh, windows to our world of the, of the 19th and 18th century. Yet old windows are character-defining elements. Just think about these. Windows are character-defining elements of the house and are the focus of many restoration products, projects. And uh, with my experience of over 12 period house restorations, putting the original number of lights back in, the type of muttons and mullions, the, uh, the type of molded uh, molding on them, and the, the thickness and the configuration, the frame, the frame width, uh, etc., it defines a house and, and puts the house back in original. Too many things have been changed, particularly window size over the years, up and beyond the uh, the size or the uh, the number of lights. So let's talk about with sash how to make and install replacement parts. So repairing existing windows is relatively easy because individual parts on the sash can be replaced. If you're semi-skilled, a semi-skilled um, woodworker. This is more economical than buying new windows, and it preserves the original fabric of the building. So here I'm going to show or describe you in a few of my favorite methods for reproducing and replacing damaged sash parts using hand and shop woodworking tools. These methods work on all wood sash, but for some windows, they may require adaptations. The more lights the window has, the more involved the repair will definitely be. There's no doubt about it. So let's talk about reproducing original sash parts. Measure and accurately record the profile of whatever part you're reproducing, rail, style, and or mutton. Sash parts are small, and accuracy is extremely important for a tight, functional window. Use vernier calipers and the profile gauge to record the, the molding size and shape. Dimensions can vary, especially on early handmade sash. So be sure to measure at several places to determine what the original maker considered standard or strike an average somewhere in between. So often I file a matching pattern in a piece of soft sheet metal, such as copper and aluminum. So now let's do some stock preparation. So use boards that have at least one true flat surface and edge. So if, if you're making a lot of stock, plane the boards to the thickness of sash. If not, size the parts to their finished thickness and width 
on the table saw. Cut out plenty of extra pieces for practice and testing using the metal pattern as a model. So don't ever go into this thinking that you just have enough wood to do it. You need to have probably 20% extra parts. You usually won't go wrong using the same quality and species of wood as the original sash for it lasted this long. So I've even seen sash out of white pine, yellow pine, fir, redwood, and even mahogany in the period. When in doubt, use a stable, machinable wood with some resistance to decay, such as white pine or mahogany. Always use pieces with tight, straight grain. So it, this is more than 10 growth rings per inch and cut from the heartwood. Curved or wavy grain results in really weak members or com components of the pieces. Well-seasoned edge grain lumber is a must. If rails and styles are longer than 30 inches, I cut the width and thickness 1 16th to 1 8th inch oversized and set them aside for a few days before milling to size. This is necessary because some planks have internal stresses that will cause the pieces to change shape after they are cut. The stock can be molded in the following ways depending on your equipment and skills. So shape, let's talk about the basics, shaping with a hand plane. So when you need only a few feet of stock, a hand plane is a cost-effective way to make sash parts. It's probably what was used to make the original windows in your, uh, in your said historic dwelling. So, you know, if it's before the 19th century or middle of the 18th century. Interchangeable cutters and multiple adjustments make a combination plane of quite the versatile tool. So instead of being stuck with just a wooden molding plane, these, these uh, you know, early Stanleys and the like with all these cutters are wonderful. So it will cut moldings and rabbits with one blade. The single cutter of, of a combination plane shapes the molding and glazing rabbit at the same time. Since combination planes use only one cutter, it is often practical to custom grind a cutter to a specific profile. This is easier than grinding cutters with multiple blades, such as a router. Trace the profile from your metal guide to the blank and cut to the line using a slow turning bench grinder. Setup costs are moderate, making this an economical method if you need to do 10 to 100 feet of custom molding. Clamp or screw the stock to the work and preferably using a table, making sure that there will be no interference with the plane's cutter or fences. Adjust the plane's side fence to give the needed mutton thickness, then set to the plane's depth. Stop so that the glazing rabbits are <coughs> cut to the needed dimensions. These adjustments can only be made by setting the guides and then testing them on a scrap piece of wood until the results are just what you need. Once you've satisfied, you're satisfied with your settings, set up with your straight grain stock in plane with smooth, even strokes. If it looks like the grain is tearing out, try the other edge of the board using the grain that way. So the grain's directions can affect the planing. It takes 8 to 10 strokes to fully form the molding profile. During production, check your dimensions often with your metal guide and vernier calipers.
Even the guides are just, if they're just set right, the cut may vary. A lot depends on how you hold the plane and, and your pressure down on the wood. Your technique may be what needs adjusting, not the plane itself. So test and yourself and the equipment. Get in the feel of things. Think of yourself as a robot designed to hold the plane at exactly the same angle and apply the same pressure with each stroke. Muttons are symmetrical, so form one inch and then flip it over to the other. When the molding is complete, rip it off the board on the table saw. So let's go from using the molding planes. Let's talk about using a router setup. So there's multiple ways to do things in woodworking, as we know. So you can use a router table to quickly form each side of the mutton or rail profile with a single pass. The router is mounted so that the bit stands up through a hole, similar to a, a shaper, but on a much smaller level. In recent years, a wide variety of router bit profiles has become available, so you're more likely to find a close match to your, in, your interior molding profile. Some later hand shaping may be necessary to get exactly what you need. So um, if you don't have it, if you're not, you know, if you're not worried about an exact match, this is one way to do it. And then take a standard rabbiting bit, bit and then use it to cut the glazing rabbit. So attach a two by five inch wood fence to guide the wood past the bit. I bored a hole through the fence and carved a socket at the end of a shop vac to, uh, to, to set up effectively to remove the chips so they don't clog the bit. Adjust the height of the router bit and the fence and test the cuts to assure the proper size and shape. Clamp spring-type hold-down on the table and fence to guide the sash stock through the cutter. Simply feeding the stock past the cutter by hand will not give consistent results. Hold-downs also make the task of feeding the stock much easier if you're cutting. I cut all the rabbits and then all the moldings in separate runs. It just makes more sense. So let's try doing this with a table saw. For sash with little to no molded detail or no need for detail, such as a, a cellar attic or outbuilding window, a low cost alternative may be cutting replacement parts on a table saw. Use a smoothing cutting, uh, cutting plane, planer blade with an insert that fits close to the blade for shape and a dado blade to cut the glazing rabbits. You can shape the pieces from the edge of the board and separate them from the waste wood later for safer and easier cutting. If you don't use oversized boards, be careful. Use push sticks and spring type hold downs. Remember too that long stock gives you more to hold than the short sections. Even if you need some simple detail, you can still make repeated cuts on the table saw to get a general shape. Then rasp and sand to the prof proper profile. This process is, is quite simple, but it does take some practice, forethought, and a bit of time. You must cut the piece in such a way that it always has enough square edges to ride on the table with the rip fence. It's a matter of the order in which you must save and make the cuts. First, plane, plane the wood to its overall thickness. Next, cut the glazing rabbits. Then, 
cut the molding profiles by making numerous passes on the table saw and adjusting the blade height so that the curves on the basic profile of the molding you are attempting to reproduce. Hand rasp and sand and do rough shaping to get the proper detail. So replacing sash parts. So divided light sashes are assembled with mortise and tenon joints. This makes replacing individual parts a bit tricky because the whole sash interlocks. To install a new piece with the same joinery, you have to completely disassemble the sash and reconnect it with a new piece in place. A better idea is to adapt the parts slightly so they can be added to the sash that's still intact. Rails. The meeting rail on the top sash is often the most weathered, part of the double sash window. A relatively small member to begin with, it's exposed to high levels of sun and rain, so sagging and rot are quite common. The lower rail and the bottom sash, too, often needs replacement because of decay caused by pounding water on the sill. To replace the broken rail, remove it and any remaining tenons on this, the ends of the muttons. Trim away the decayed cheeks, and these are the molded joints, from the style ends. Lay out the lap joint on each end of the new rail with a tri-square bevel and pencil. The check of the lap is angled slightly to match the check of the old joint. Cut the shoulder of the joint with a small, fine-toothed back saw. Trim the check of the lap to the lines of, with a sharp chisel. Test the completed joint against its mate on an old joint. It is always a good idea to practice with an extra piece of stock before cutting the actual joints. With the sash held vertically in a bench vise, temporarily clamp the rail in place. Bore a 3 6 inch hole through the rail into the ends of the old vertical muttons. Cut a quarter inch dowel and slip them apart away into the holes. So I soak the ends of the styles and muttons with epoxy consolidant, especially, you know, when if the wood is like a punky wood, and prime mating surfaces on the new rail. I also apply a mixture of epoxy consolidant and epoxy paste filler to the <coughs> mating surfaces as a gap filling adhesive. After this, tip the rail into position with care to align the joints, pins, and holes correctly. Finally, clamp the style to rail joints with C-clamps and the mutton to rail joints with bar clamps. You can also use countersunk screws with putty or buttons for the lap joint or peg them to match the original sash joints. So let's talk about the muttons. Usually, a sash doesn't need to be taken apart to replace a single section of mutton. The original mutton has tenons on both ends that fit into the mortises. Vertical muttons run from the top of the bottom rail to the sash. Replacing a vertical mutton requires fitting the horizontal muttons into it. Replacing a horizontal mutton, often smashed when the catch is left open uh, while the window is raised or lowered, is easier. Horizontal muttons typically run in short spans mortised into the vertical muttons. First, I remove the broken mutton 
and clean out the mortises. If the damaged piece is still fast in both mortises, you can cut through it in the middle and wiggle and, and, and each side will come out. Next, I use a fine-toothed saw and sharp chisel to trim away the small triangular section of the interior molding next to the mortise. This allows the new mutton to slide into place. Then I cut the new mutton to length. I measure to the side surface of each mortise to determine the length. Once the new mutton is cut to size, I trim the molding with a sharp chisel to form a bevel that meets with the triangular section cut previously at the vertical mutton. To fit the mutton into place, slide it into both joints at once from the exterior side of, of each sash. I like to make I like to make this a press fit so the, the part holds itself in place during the gluing process. To get this fit, I cut, along, cut it along and trim it to length with a sharp chisel and sandpaper. I use epoxy adhesive formulated for use with wood or a mixture of epoxy consolidate and, and epoxy paste filler. If, if fasteners are needed, use wire brads. The rabbit strips. The thin, fragile strips between the glazing rabbits are easily damaged or weakened by decay. To replace one, trim away the damaged strip with a sharp chisel. The resulting groove should be sharp or about as deep as the glazing rabbit. For thin strips less than 3 sixteenths times 3 quarter inch, I count on a press fit and hold the strip in place while the glue sets to a snug fit so a snug fit is very important. To fasten longer or thicker strips to the mutton, I use thin wire brads with their heads broken off on the tips of the sewing needles. Instead of pounding them with a hammer, I chuck the brad in the needle of a drill and spin it into place. Then I remove the strip and apply adhesive into the groove, ends and edge of the strip. Replacing the strip with brads in their original holes, I finish driving or spinning them in. A final tap with a hammer and nail set sinks the head and the seats in the strip of the groove. To wrap up this project, reglaze the sash, paint it, and reinstall it with all the window frames. So Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, um, hope this gave you a little more insight on sash and sash restoration. Um, you know, once you start doing one or two, uh, it'll open your eyes and your mind to think of, uh, possibly other, uh, other ways to do things. So, I mean, again, woodworking, there's always several ways to, to get to the end result. So Greg Perry, the Historic Preservation is signing out. Thanks for listening.